0: This episode of Lyrics for Lunch is brought to you by Dirty Dirty
1: Juice. Juice.
0: Hey, wait a minute, Chester. You're listening to Lyrics for Lunch. It's a weekly podcast where we do deep dives into old songs and their stories behind them. And you put the load right on me. No, wait. (laughs) Uh, I'm Evie Rubenstein. I'm one of your hosts. Joining me as always, the uh, Levon Helms to my, I don't know who else is in the band,
1: I think it's Helm.
0: Well, there, but there's more than one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I introduced you.
1: To, to your Robbie, Robbie Robertson? Robert, Robbie Hello, uh, I'm Lindsay Tucker. Hi. Yep. I thought you were going to say my name. I thought I had No, but I this. thought that
0: you just, no, no. I did it wrong. <laughs> Lindsay Tucker, how are you?
1: Hi, hi, hi. Uh, I'm doing <laughs> all right. Um, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's stressy, depressy, but you know.
1: The, the use the use. baseline just baseline
0: <laughs> I thought you said cosine <laughs> cosine
1: <laughs> no um all right so what are we here to talk about today
0: what are we here to talk about today
1: wait a minute wait a minute Chester uh I, I think we had some mailbag I, from my cousin Todd yeah we have the some fact-checking department yeah
0: we have some <laughs> corrections department we have some mailbag so while you pull up your cousin Todd She's not my mom, Todd. (laughs) This is from Amanda Kremers, who says, I'm on a right here, right now kick by Jesus Jones. And it might be an interesting episode, Perestroika, Prince and the Berlin Wall. I'm into it. So we're going to do, this will be our next episode. We'll be doing right here, right now by Jesus Jones. I'll, I'll research it for you, Amanda. Woohoo. Woohoo. Um and sh- she goes on to say, "You know who loves cold heart now? My husband." <laughs> I guess I'll be hearing a lot more of it now.
1: Um that was funny to me.
0: I I thought it was funny to I thought it was very funny.
1: Uh yeah. So this is from my cousin Todd, um who Hi, is like Todd. just the best person ever. And he said, "As he was listening to our Nirvana episode, I keep yelling out all my Nirvana trivia while you guys are going through it." quote he didn't use a tube screamer it was a boss ds1 oh my god todd that besides album incesticide
0: yeah incesticide go on
1: mud honey does rule
0: okay so i don't remember which one of us said that cobain was using a tube screamer
1: i think it was you
0: oh okay whatever (laughs) so this is from the boss website the DS-1 distortion is a true icon in the world of guitar f- effects. Introduced in 1978, Boss's first distortion pedal defined a bold new sound delivering hard-edged attack and smooth sustain that has been a staple of players for generations. The DS-1 is the top-selling Boss compact pedal ever, and its original unchanged design continues to inspire the creation of great music everywhere the classic ds1 tone is behind the signature sounds of numerous rock legends and is ready to fuel your own signature sound today
1: why did you just do a ds1 commercial
0: because that's what todd wanted from
1: us (laughs) um no when i asked todd if we should run a correction he said i bet the grunge community is flipping cars over by now
0: so Here's, here's the, the dirty truth from a guitar player who has used many pedals before. They're all the, kind of the fucking same, guys. It's, they're, they are distortion pedals. They have varying levels of gain and sustain and clipping, but they all basically do the same thing. So you can use them interchangeably. Doesn't I doesn't change I'm the giving, fact
1: that you were wrong.
0: I am giving everyone permission. I don't know if it was me, even, but sure.
1: Okay. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. It'd be hilarious if it know. was me, but I don't. I just don't see myself bringing up the tube screamer for no reason.
0: So tubes without so, proper research. The DS one is technically an overdrive pedal, and a tube screamer mimics overdriven tubes. So, like, we're re- we're like really, really getting into minutia here. But sh- okay, sure.
1: I feel I like your reaction is rude.
0: Well, she's not my mother, Todd. You're
1: very defensive.
0: <laughs> Do you get that a lot, Todd?
1: What about the fox and the hound? You're what my the fox best and the friend. And you're mine too, Todd. Oh, And Todd we'll and always Copper? be friends. Forever. Don't yeah, they become not forever. friends at the end? Yeah, it's really <laughs> doesn't, sad. Doesn't
0: the dog kill the fox?
1: Um, I hope it's not murder. I don't remember the end. I just know it was sad. I think they like just see each other and go separate ways. And then a song plays.
0: Uh, And and funny, in both pieces of media that we're talking about, the character Todd dies.
1: Oh, Jesus. Did you just Google that? No. I don't think Todd dies in the movie. Mm. Fox and the Hound. Google it.
0: This is the lyrics for lunch. Fox and the Hound edition.
1: (laughs) Hey, wait a minute, Chester.
0: Does Todd die in the Fox and the Hound? Yes. (laughs) In the novel.
1: Oh, but not the Disney movie.
0: So, this is from the Fox and the Hound Wikipedia page. Uh,
1: Excellent source.
0: Todd finally drops dead of exhaustion and Copper collapses on... Copper's like chasing him. So, Todd drops dead of exhaustion and Copper collapses on top of him. Close to death himself. The master nurses Copper back to health and both enjoy their new popularity. But after months of excitement over Copper's accomplishment accomplishment dies down the master is alone again and returns to drinking jesus he goes into a nursing home and okay
1: he- this is very dark
0: and then he fucking oh my god i i like i'm literally not going to read the end of no the i have to, to you.
1: know tell me
0: so the master is old now and considering living in a nursing home and so he can't take the dog to the nursing home and so he gets the shotgun off the wall and covers Copper's eyes and Copper licks his hand trustingly and oh that's God. it.
1: Oh my God. Ew!
0: I told you.
1: Well, I feel like you're threatening my cousin here and no. now you've ruined Fox and the Hound for me.
0: I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, as for the movie... <laughs>
1: Longing looks and they go their separate ways.
0: I think so. Maybe. Hold on. <laughs> They've run up a cliff. Todd, Todd, at the end of the movie is seen sitting on a cliff watching his friend Copper from afar as yeah. his as Vixie, his lady fox joins him because we got to got to be heteronormative with cartoon foxes.
1: Totally. Mandic pixie dream fox.
0: But Todd dies in Terminator 2. He gets stabbed by the knife hand. Knife hand.
1: Knife Hand.
0: Knife Hand. What are we talking <laughs> about this week, Lindsay?
1: We're here today to talk about The Weight, which is a song by the band The Band. Uh-huh. This is a song that you've told me you do not like.
0: I don't care for it.
1: And I, I, I don't... can't wait to hear why.
0: Um, I think it's less about the song itself and more about kind of like Going to college in the mid 2000s and like go. It's like it reminds me of like Wagon Wheel in that it's mm-hmm. like the, the the acoustic guitar at a party thing. Like, if I never hear Wagon Wheel again, I will be the happiest pig in shit. Same kind of the same with the weight. I don't think it is a good enough song to be the go to song for every like douchebag with an acoustic guitar at a college party.
1: Sure. Also, Aviv doesn't drink. So, He's True. never had like a drunken sing-along to the weight.
0: I have never <laughs> had a drunken sing-along to the weight. Uh, <laughs> although you teed me up perfectly is I, I texted you earlier today that I had something that we could go out on if you want, which is a drunken sing-along of my friends to the weight.
1: Oh, incredible. Um yes. we're gonna have to hear that at some point.
0: Yeah, I can I can tee up the story. It makes a little bit more sense. When we talk about the last waltz today, which yeah. I'm sure we will at some point, yep. I will I will I'll remind me to tell you about the la- my own last waltz.
1: Perfect. Um, okay, so the wait, we'll just do our regular release scheduled background information. The wait was released in January of nineteen sixty eight. By the band Canadian American group, made up of four Canadians and one American. Great. Do you know any of the founding members?
0: Levon Helm. Yep. Robbie Robertson. Yep, the two that we just told me. (laughs) Is Neil Young in there? No. No. I bet you I will recognize the names, but I know that they were Bob Dylan's backing band.
1: Correct. So Rick Danko. Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, Robbie Robertson, and Lee Von Helm. Nope, only
0: knew Robbie Robertson (laughs) and Lee Von Helm.
1: Uh, Lee Von Helm was the American. Great. Uh, The band is often credited with pioneering the blend of country, folk, blues, and rock that brought them critical acclaim in the 1960s and 70s. And The Weight has often appeared on top influential rock song lists, appearing in the past in the top 50 of Rolling Stone's greatest songs of all time list, which has since been demoted.
0: Ah, uh, suck it, the weight. <laughs> Get out of here.
1: When the band was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, which, is that the real Hall of Fame? In 1989. Yeah, Cana- it's like them, Rush. <laughs> they performed the Wait. So, sure. I was going to ask you if you know how the band got famous, but you just jumped the gun.
0: Sorry. Yes, they were Dylan's backing band, which is why they're called the band. It was Bob Dylan and the band. And then they just like went solo and started writing their own songs. Is that
1: right? Incorrect.
0: Oh, well, I'll go fuck myself then.
1: The band started out as a backing group for rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins in the late Mm. 1950s before they toured as Bob Dylan's backing band. And they were not called the band yet. This is from NPR. The band generated mythic status from the start. Crashing on the scene as Bob Dylan's anonymous but not-for-long backup band on his controversial and thrilling electrified tours of 1965 and 1966. The group emerged fully formed, capable of both intense and experimentalist noise and tight, basic rock and roll. This from Rolling Stone. They all met playing with Ronnie Hawkins, who hired them one by one until, after three years, they quit. They were playing at a nightclub in the seashore resort of Summers Point, New Jersey, when, in the summer of 1965, Dylan telephoned them. We had never heard of Bob Dylan, says drummer Levon Helm, (laughs) who, as a sharecropper son from the South Arkansas' Delta country, is the only American in the band. But he had heard of us, he said.
0: Oh, okay. What a, uh, We didn't know Bob Dylan, but he sure knew <laughs> <Right>? us.
1: <laughs> he said, you want to play Hollywood Bowl? So we asked him who else was going to be on the show, and he said, just us. The band's first album, which I think I mentioned, came out in 1968, was called Music from Big Pink. The wave okay. is the fifth track on that album. Now, Big Pink, in actuality, was a ranch house the band lived in for $125 a month. After they returned from Dylan's tour, when he had called them up to Woodstock to make a TV movie. It was in Woodstock, living in Big Pink, where they'd set up a home studio in the basement, that people started referring to them as the band.
0: Like the Wrecking Crew, right? It was like a, a nickname for them first, before it was like an actual band name? Yes. Question mark?
1: Robbie Robertson told Rolling Stone, You know, for one thing, there aren't many bands around Woodstock. And our friends and neighbors just called us the band. And that's the way we think of ourselves. And then we just don't think a name means anything. It's gotten out of hand, the name thing. We don't want... The name
0: (laughs) Names are so pedestrian.
1: (laughs) We don't want to get into a fixed bag like that.
0: What the fuck does that mean? I
1: have no idea. So Robertson was 24 at the time of this interview. Which was on the co- which was the cover story.
0: This, this sounds like a twenty four year old fucking. Oh, totally. Where he's like, oh god, who needs a name?
1: Yeah. So that quote from Robertson, who by the way is a Toronto native, came from the cover story of the August nineteen sixty eight issue of Rolling Stone.
0: For our listener Sonia Missio, we know it's pronounced Toronto.
1: What? Oh, I I said the T.
0: You said the T. Drop be. the T. It's,
1: it's cleaner. So this was back before cover lines went in and then out of fashion again and so the cover line simply read report from Newport Folk Festival
0: so explain what a cover line is Ms. Magazine editor
1: uh, a cover line is exactly what it sounds like it's the line that's on the cover that's like new year new you great abs and 15 moves yeah. t- t- tw- <laughs>
0: 12 tips to please him in bed
1: <laughs> yeah how to and make so your tubes scream
0: how to make your tubes <laughs> um so this said just report from newport folk festival yeah i sent you a link it really just dry
1: yeah you can click on it if you want to see it and tell us what you see
0: so this is the cover of rolling stone from the 1968 in august um in august and it is the five members of the band sitting on a bench that's meant for three people and by, they're looking at a lake or, and, or maybe a river or maybe a creek river and it's his report from the New Folk Festival. But it's their backs. The the, the band. It's yeah. just their
1: backs. You can't see their yeah. faces. Right. Which is kind of, I think, just like a play on the fact that they're just called the band, maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anonymous. Yeah. Right.
1: So their album wasn't a huge commercial success, even though they got the color- cover of Rolling Stone. Um, it did, however, attract a cult following, which... Maybe why they got the cover. According to NPR, music from Big Pink was embraced by musicians and critics and seen as the harbinger of a new kind of post psychedelic roots music. That album and their second, self titled The Band, which came out in 1969 were not big sellers, but gained huge respect from critics and musicians as the group built up a passionate fan following. In 1975, critic Grail Marcus described them in Mystery Train Images of America in Rock and Roll as committed to the very idea of America, complicated, dangerous, and alive. Their music gave us a sure sense that the country was richer than we had guessed, that it has possibility we were only beginning to perceive.
0: Okay that's that's a lot of pressure for one group, group, one of, group, canadians, group of canadians yeah. right? <laughs> there's one american but
1: yes um shall we listen to the weight
0: we shall listen to the weight oh, okay what i don't hate the song i just like i i i lump it in with like which is probably unfair like like dave matthews band and shit like that
1: honestly pro, like dave matthews band kind of show. rips No. He walks over the moon now. Great tune. Uh
0: my friend Andrew and I are going to start a band called Dave Against the Machine, where it's Dave Matthews' band lyrics over rage against the machine rips. Riffs.
1: Okay, I'm interested.
0: Yeah. Uh the first single is going to be called Ants on Parade. Ants <laughs>
1: on <The> Parade. Perfect. <laughs> Hey mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed?
0: Yeah, it's just like a little kind of groovy. It's
1: fun. like I get it what you're saying because I feel the same way about like CCR
0: sure yeah, yeah yeah I get it this is just a little too earnest for me
1: but then every time I hear this song I'm just like nope I love it love it <laughs> I, I gotta go but my friend can stick around take a load off
0: also have like a kind of a some trouble with bands that are just like a road wagon train looking out the new west like no you didn't you're Canadian you fucking drove here in a car
1: yep I think we'll get to that by the end <laughs> My son, won't you stay and keep an early company? Take a load off.
0: I think it, the, the, the fat it makes it a college party staple just because of that step harmony.
1: Yeah <laughs> you know I will fix If you take Jack my dog. Hey, wait a minute, Chester. What
0: the fuck does this song? We're
1: gonna find out. Oh. I'm
0: training. like, I'm like, on the edge of my seat because <laughs> it has always been a total nonsense song to me.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna take you on a roller coaster from nonsense to poetry and back again.
0: Okay, <laughs> cannot
1: wait. <laughs> oh my god, there's a whole nother verse.
0: Yeah. This is also my problem with it. There are five verses.
1: And I do believe it's time.
0: This is why I thought the song was like 90 minutes
1: long. She's the only one. It's weird that these are like 24-year-olds. They sound old as shit.
0: Well, because they're pretending, right? It's like...
1: But do you know any 24 year olds that could just like throw their voice and sound like yes. like a hundred? Yeah, like yeah, this? yeah.
0: Okay. Let me take you back in time here to 2009 <laughs> okay. in Boston. And everyone's like, I want to be a folk singer. Oh, sure. Like, like I played with bands that just like pretended to be like,
1: I grew up in a trash can in <laughs> Alabama.
0: And I'm like, no, you are from fucking
1: <laughs> Connecticut,
0: Connecticut. <laughs> Okay. Okay. We did it. We did it. So
1: we did it and we are going to talk about what the song is about. I think maybe we have to do a dramatic reading first.
0: Yeah. Do we need need to do the accents?
1: Um accents are always required.
0: Wait a minute, Chester. (laughs)
1: It's
0: like I I hear like Goofy the Dog singing it.
1: Oh my god. I just text or sent you the like lyric genius link.
0: Okay. Who would like you would would you like to start or should I start?
1: I think I'll start. Right. I pulled into Nazareth. Was feeling about half past dead. Dead. dead.
0: They're Canadian. You're from Toronto.
1: <laughs> I just need some place where I can lay my head. Hey mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. I thought it was shook his head. I thought so too actually. And no was all he said
0: take a load off fanny okay okay (laughs) we know it's not annie it's fanny so like, (laughs) also for for our british listeners fanny means vagina
1: (laughs) up until a few months ago i thought the chorus was take a load off annie i remember i texted you and i found out
0: yep fanny like Um, i thought it was
1: annie as in little orphan
0: you thought that they were literally referring to Little Orphan Annie? <laughs> no. Like, oh man, she should sit down because she's been working she's so been hard. It's a hard knock life for dancing her. dancing
1: with Daddy Warbucks.
0: We're gonna get mailbag. It is. This is a, one of those mind blowers. It is take a load off, Fanny, but. Fanny means vagina, and load can mean just a bunch of jizz. Literally,
1: I literally wrote that this is so much less adorable and endearing to me now that we're taking a load off of someone named Fanny because now this is just a bathroom talk.
0: we're taking a load off of someone's Fanny.
1: (laughs) Exactly. This is trash.
0: (sighs) Take a load off Fanny. Take a load for free. Take a load off Fanny and 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 you put the load right on me so this is about like cum swapping totes why am i the dirty one today
1: (laughs) i mean i don't know you just took your dirty juice
0: (laughs) it's my dirty (laughs) juice. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) this episode of lyrics for lunch is brought to you by dirty Dirty juice juice.
1: available i picked up i picked up
0: i picked up my bag I went looking for a place to hide when I saw Carmen and the devil walking side by side. Okay, pause.
1: Another misheard lyric. I thought it was karma and the devil.
0: I've never gone this far. Way
1: better juxtaposition in my opinion, but go ahead.
0: I'm sure we'll talk about who Carmen is, but sure. We might. Go ahead. Hey, I said, hey, Carmen, come on. Let's go downtown. And she said, I got to go. But my friend, parentheses, the devil can stick around.
1: Correct. Take a load off Fanny. Take a load for free. Take a load off Fanny. And, 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 you put the load, put the load right on me. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Go down, Miss Moses. There's nothing you can say. It's just old Lukey, and Luke's waiting on Judgment Day. Well, Luke, my friend, what about young Anna Lee? Okay, see, Why might someone think it's Annie if they're just saying young Anna Lee? Maybe that's her name and she goes by Annie. How cute. But no. He said, do me a favor, son. Won't you stay and keep Anna Lee company?
0: Stay and keep Anna Lee company. Take a load off, Fanny. Take a load for free. (laughs) Take a load off, Fanny. And, 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 you put the load right on me.
1: You're reading it as if it's like comma Fanny and it's not.
0: I, but I, I'm just doing it specifically <laughs> so you can hear the fanny.
1: Okay. Which is horrible. Please stop saying fanny.
0: Uh, Crazy Chester followed me and he caught me in the fog. He said, I'll fix your rack if you take Jack, my dog. I said, wait a minute, Chester. You know I'm a peaceful man. What does that mean?
1: Also, one he- of my questions
0: he said that's okay boy won't you feed him when you can so
1: i was specifically googling this because this has always bothered me like is is he talking about dog murder this
0: this episode has a lot of dog murder in it already (laughs) but like what this song is total nonsense
1: then we're taking the loads off of fanny Once again, and then catch a cannonball. Now to take me down the line, my bag is sinking low, and I do believe it's time to get. Is this
0: about his testicles?
1: Yes. (laughs) To get back to Miss Fanny, you know she's the only one who sent me here with her regards for everyone.
0: All right, I'm begging. I'm begging of you to explain to me what the song means. Okay,
1: you are in so much luck. Thank you. Okay, so. The Wait tells a story of a guy who visits Nazareth, right?
0: Yeah, Nazareth, like, like, comma, Jesus of.
1: Incorrect.
0: Nazareth, Pennsylvania.
1: Yes, where the Martin Guitar Factory is and where my cousin Todd worked for many years.
0: She's not my mother, Todd. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Little fun fact, the rock group Nazareth got their name from the opening line went down to Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. Nazareth is best known for, I think, Love Stinks.
0: Love Stinks!
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mutants at Table 9. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Except for
0: that guy. (laughs) Mutants at Table (laughs) 9.
1: Sideburn Lady. So, yeah, there are many interpretations of the meaning of the song, but... Band member Robbie Robertson says that he wrote it one day while noodling on his guitar while he was trying to come up for songs for music from Big Pink. He looked inside his 1951 Martin... His
0: soul. (laughs) Yeah.
1: He looked inside his 1951 Martin D-28 acoustic guitar, and he saw the Martin imprint that said, crafted in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. God damn it. He said in the documentary, Once We Were Brothers, Cole and Robbie Robertson in the band... The name of the town spurred memories of a journey he had made from his native Canada down to the Mississippi Delta when he was sixteen years old.
0: <laughs> oh my god.
1: He thought of all the characters he met on that trip. And Why the fuck mind, are you
0: doing this to me?
1: <laughs> in his mind heard voices singing what would become the song's chorus. Here's Robertson to Rolling Stone in nineteen sixty nine.
0: Nazareth is it. is just a few uh few miles away from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, by the way.
1: Correct. Yeah. I just wrote it. It's just one of those things. I thought of a couple of words that led to a couple more, and the next thing I knew, I wrote the song. The song was the only song on music from Big Pink that we never did rehearse. We just figured that it was a simple song, and when it came up, we gave it a try, and we recorded it three or four times. We said, that's fine. Maybe we'll use it. We didn't even know if we were going to use it, and it turned out to be the album. Hmm. Sounds a little too good to be true, but
0: um, uh, no, it it sounds exactly like what the song sounds like. <laughs> the song sounds like an unrehearsed <laughs> jam with gibberish lyrics.
1: Uh, all right, who, uh, there, was,
0: there was like a listener who was like Aviv hates on shit too much. He, it's been a while, and I'm so, I'm so <laughs> anti this hater song. today. I did hate juice. <laughs>
1: So the narrator goes to Nazareth and he's beaten all these people and he calls them out by name because mm-hmm. he's asked by somebody named Fanny to visit several people, possibly her friends.
0: But what is the load? that so, okay.
1: so according to song facts, the weight that is his load are all of these strange people that he promised he would check in on.
0: So this is like my name is Earl the song, like Fanny <laughs> gives him a list and he's like, "Whoa, this list this is a lot of fucking people I got to talk to. Crazy Chester, Carmen and the Devil." And and it's too much, Fanny. It's too much. Got to take a load off.
1: <laughs> Basically, and like he can't find a bed, right? So the characters in the song, Crazy Chester, Luke, Anna Lee are allegedly based on friends of the band. In Levon Helm's autobiography, This Wheel's on Fire, Levon Helm and the story of the band, Helm writes, We had two or three tunes or pieces of tunes, and the weight was one I would work on. Robbie had that bit about going down to Nazareth, Pennsylvania, where the Martin Guitar Factory is at. The song is full of our favorite characters. So I'm going to continue with this quote from Helm, and then we're going to talk about who these people actually are slash were. Great. Quote Helm. Luke was Jimmy Ray Paulman. Young Anna Lee was Annalee Williams from Turkey Scratch. Crazy Chester was a guy we all knew from Fayetteville who came into town on Saturdays wearing a full set of cap guns on his hips and kind of walked around town to help keep the peace if you follow me. He was like Hopalong Cassidy and he was a friend of the Hawks. Ronnie... Of Ronnie and the Hawks. Ronnie whatever and the Hawks. Ronnie would always check with Crazy Chester to make sure there wasn't any trouble around town. And Chester would reassure him that everything was peaceable and not to worry because he was on the case. Two big cap guns he wore. Plus a toupee.
0: Uh, so so we got... We have Chester. The real Chester seems like a... Uh, you know, a little... Develop- There's something wrong emotionally or developmentally. And he's just like a guy around town who like wears cap guns, and they're like, just just keeping the peace, ma'am. And you're like, okay, you're an adult with cap guns on? That's what we're talking about here?
1: Correct. And um, we're going to hear from Robertson later about Crazy Chester, and it's going to be uh, even different. Okay. And so, yep, there was also Carmen and the Devil, Miss Moses, and Fanny, a name that just seemed to fit the picture. I believe she looked a lot like Caledonia. What? Yeah, we'll get to that. We recorded the song maybe four times. We weren't really sure it was going to be on the album, but people really liked it. Rick, Richard, and I would switch the verses around Among Us, and we all sang the chorus, Put the Load Right on Me. Okay, so who are these people? Jimmy Ray Palman. You know who that is? No. Rockabilly guitarist and singer, also known as Jimmy Luke.
0: That's cool. Born in Arkansas,
1: Jimmy Luke was an early guitarist for Harold Jenkins, a.k.a. Conway Twitties, the Rockhousers. And Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. He's also a songwriter and singer. He wrote the song I Need Your Lovin', recorded by Conway Twitty in 1957. You wanna hear a little clippy?
0: Sure. Baby I need your love. No, not that one. Okay.
1: That one's better.
0: <laughs>
1: love love. Give me some love and make love love. Give me some love and make me some love give
0: me some Okay. Listeners, by the way, this is uh, only playing in my right earphone, so I will try to balance it in the final mix when I edit this. But it's not my fault. It's it's the song itself.
1: It's playing in both my ears. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's bouncing back and forth, right? Right? Back and forth.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's like ping ponging, which I don't think is on purpose.
1: Okay. Great. Yeah.
0: Deaf and colorblind. And face blind.
1: <laughs> what is face blind?
0: It's proto prosopagnosia. It's I can't recognize people's faces.
1: You can't recognize people's faces?
0: I have a lot of trouble recognizing people's faces.
1: So like if I saw you out somewhere, you would be like, who
0: I would recognize <laughs> you, but if you changed your hair or your glasses, I would have trouble.
1: <laughs> okay. Wow. So that was Conway Twitty performing uh, the song that Luke wrote. Now, this is Luke singing the song Be Mine in 1960.
0: Okay. Jimmy Luke Paulman, mm-hmm. Be Mine. Be mine. I know the song.
1: Be mine. So that's Luke.
0: Old Luke. Don't. All these fucking people sound like Elvis to me.
1: I thought they did, too. All right, so Anna Lee Williams was born and raised in the Delta what? in Turkey Scratch, near Marvel, Phillips County, Arkansas. Marvel, Turkey
0: L? Scratch, Arkansas.
1: She was a childhood neighbor and close, lifelong friend of Levon Helm. According to Mental Floss, she would home-cook southern staples like cornbread and fried green tomatoes whenever Helm came to visit her. Okay. Okay. So then we have Fanny, who, quote, looked a lot like Caledonia present-day scotland like i don't know what this means and they've spelled it c-a-l-a-d-o-n-i-a which is like not how you spell caledonia anyway there's an urban dictionary entry from september 2019 that has caledonia but spelled the right way as a girl who is so beautiful and cool she's kind and gentle but also strong and determined She's generous and calm, what? but also can definitely have a shit ton of fun. You definitely want to party with her. Jeff. Oh, my God. Watch out. Here comes Caledonia. She's so fucking sexy. Dave. Yeah, I know. She was at Kaylee's party. She's so fun. <laughs>
0: we're, doing, we're doing it? We're what? doing that?
1: <laughs> I thought that that's what it says. i so, fucking reading it.
0: <laughs> Caledonia is the personification of spring and Scotland.
1: Okay, but it's spelled with an e, right? C a l e.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. The a is the a is fucking me up. But there's a picture from the British Museum of Caledonia with an e. Because
1: isn't Caledonia present day Scotland? Like it just used to be called that.
0: Yeah, but the like the the uh, I don't want to call it like the patron saint, but the like the personification of Scotland is is Caledonia. Also, the personification seems like of spring. Okay. I mean, sure. That's like a weird pull, though.
1: To get back to Miss Fanny. You know, she's the only one.
0: So, Fanny looks like Scotland?
1: Yep. Okay. And she's so much fun. Uh, mm-hmm. To But catch so you gotta a c- take a load off. Yeah. Just gotta catch... The cannonball. Catch Gotta the cannonball. catch them all. <laughs> the line, catch a cannonball, now to take me down the line, refers to a train. There was no real cannonball, according to song facts, except in legend. It was popularized in the song from the 1800s called the Wabash Cannonball. And it was mentioned in some blues songs of the early 1900s, including the original version of C.C. Ryder.
0: Okay, I need you to say this all again, but make it make sense.
1: Why doesn't that make sense?
0: None of it. None of it. So
1: cannonball is apparently a legendary train that was popularized in some 1800 song called the Wabash Wabash W-A-B-A-S-H cannonball. And then like some other blues songs in the early 1900s name dropped it including the original version of a song called CC Rider.
0: I don't know what CC Rider is.
1: Okay. Well, let's listen to it.
0: So when you catch in the cannonball, you're catching the, train
1: yes 310 to yuma
0: is a cannonball
1: <laughs> i don't know
0: so you're just naming trains <laughs> yeah the darjeeling limited <laughs> oh it's disco elvis
1: oh my panties are dropped
0: we all know you don't wear underwear <laughs>
1: I'm actually not wearing underwear right now.
0: (laughs) Shh. Do I have your permission to (laughs) cut that out or keep that in the show?
1: Whatever you want. It's
0: like a train song.
1: Sounds. Yep. Snipping like a train, sharp like a razor.
0: Black people on stage with Elvis.
1: Look at that.
0: How about it? This is like drugged out all this. They're playing this like 20 BPM too fast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we're going to get to the fun part. Some of the interpretations. Mm -hmm. Um... Are there any that you would like to put forth, or do you want to guess?
0: Interpretations of what it all means?
1: Yeah. Uh, I
0: don't, I've i never really, I've like kind of thought about it, but given up when it becomes clearly un- untenable. I always thought Fanny was like a little girl for some reason. Hmm. Uh, but i have no real other interpretations or guesses on other interpretations other than like i'm sure someone has said that they're a ghost right that there's like an interpretation where the person is like a ghost because that's (laughs) every single song listeners every single song that we research there's like someone on reddit being like what if the singer is a ghost like every single fucking song (laughs)
1: okay that's true but what about what i the very beginning when i asked you what does it mean pulled into nazareth
0: oh so it's about jesus or something and he's like taking everyone's load their sins and he's going up to heaven with the sins and everyone's loads kind of put your load right on jesus's (laughs) chest
1: yeah
0: and let him take that back up to heaven
1: literally i mean there are people who have that interpretation
0: who just like They think the song is about jizzing on Jesus?
1: (laughs) No, about like Jesus unburdening all of humanity. Of course.
0: Right. Sure.
1: But Robertson was a fan of European art films in the late 1960s.
0: Whom's among us?
1: And he says he was influenced by the work of Spanish surrealist filmmaker, Luis Buñuel. (laughs) Buñuel. Buñuel.
0: Buñuel, yeah.
1: Look, I looked it up.
0: The discreet charm of the bourgeoisie.
1: <laughs> Buñuel's <laughs> surrealistic imagery was often used as commentary on religion, particularly Catholicism. Uh-huh. So, trivia. What film mentions the death of Buñuel at a dinner gathering?
0: What film mentions the death of Buñuel at a dinner gathering? Just don't Bunuel. Google it. I'm not going to Google it. I would never. Titanic? Do no. they talk about Louis Bunuel dying? I I just figured that every answer that you do is <laughs> Titanic. Um, I don't know.
1: There's a Talking Heads t-shirt.
0: In the movie?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: There's a Talking Heads t-shirt in the movie?
1: And a sexy peach!
0: Oh, oh, Uh, <laughs> call me by your name. They probably, yeah, they likely do mention Louis Bunuel's death because they're all artsy-fartsy and shit. Correct. Yeah. Okay, sure makes sense cuz the the uh, director is like a european guy
1: I went down a whole rabbit hole listening to interviews of him talking about call me by your name call me by your name when i was researching this <laughs> It was all of, of
0: the of the director talking about call me by your name
1: Oh yeah explaining like Do- what what the World War 2 monument meant in the scene and why there was distance between them and why the song started playing at this exact moment I was I was really down the rabbit hole do we film. know what
0: Robbie Robertson thinks about Call Me By Your Name?
1: We don't. He <laughs> probably hasn't made any comments on it.
0: <laughs> because he is dead.
1: He's actually not. He's not dead? No.
0: Oh, good on you, Robbie.
1: <laughs> Here's what Robbie Robertson said in the sleeve notes of the band anthology Two Kingdom Come. Uh, Bunuel, as Aviv calls it, did so many films on the impossibility of sainthood. People trying to be good in Viridiana and Nazarin. People trying to do their thing. In the wait, it's the same thing. People like Buñuel would make films that had these religious connotations to them, but it wasn't necessarily a religious meaning. In Buñuel, there were these people trying to be good and it's impossible to be good. In the wait, it was this very simple thing. Someone says, "Listen, would you do me this favor? When you get there, will you say hello to somebody or will you give somebody this or will you pick up one of those for me?" Oh, you're going to Nazareth? That's where the Martin Guitar Factory is. Do me a favor when you're there. This is what it's all about. So the guy goes, uh, one thing leads to another, and it's like, holy shit! What's this turned into? I've only come here to say hello for somebody, and I've got myself in this incredible predicament. I'm. It was very Buñuelish to me at the time.
0: Give me a second before I
1: ex- implode.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> fucking what? Okay so sure maybe okay i guess boot and boonwell did a movie called nazarene he also did a short film called carmen and the De- uh, it's not it's not called carmen and the devil but it's called carmen uh okay um i mean i don't know how i feel about this
1: Right, because before it was like mm, I just wrote it.
0: We just made it up. <laughs> yeah, al El- Hazard Balthazar is a uh, a Robert Bresson film. That's the that's the thing that I was trying to think of because that is about a mule, okay. like a donkey. Yeah. That like be- like becomes the like famous donkey in the town. And like and like it's like the Forrest Gump of donkeys, right? Like he like meets everybody in the town or whatever. And so the like Forrest Gump I, of
1: donkeys, amazing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and like it's like about the devil and shit. I don't know. Uh, it's like of the same uh, era of filmmaking, and so I was thinking like maybe he is the donkey in in the senate, but it's sure. not the not the same fucking filmmaker. <laughs> so I don't know what he's fucking talking about. Belle de Jour is very good though. It is. That's a Boonwell film.
1: And it's very good.
0: It is very good. It's about a housewife who uh is bored and becomes like a like a sex worker. Just just for her kicks.
1: Is bored. Oh, I thought you said born.
0: No, bored. So she's she's Catherine Deneuve plays like a housewife and her husband is never around and so she becomes like a high class hooker to like just like get her kicks during the day.
1: It's pretty Sweet. good. Sounds fun. Yeah,
0: I watched it in film school.
1: So we're going to do some other interpretations. This, this These are coming from Because I'm
0: not buying this one.
1: Shmoop. Yeah, right?
0: This is from Schmoop?
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. I picked up my bag. I went looking for a place to hide. When I saw- Wait, th-
0: who's Shmoop?
1: <laughs> it's just a website. Shmoop.
0: If there's a website called Shmoop?
1: Yeah, I thought you have referenced it before.
0: Bullshit.
1: I really thought you did. Shmoop. Yeah, Shmoop.
0: Like, go- like goop, but for music?
1: I think it's like uh, study guides for music.
0: Smoop homework, help, and study guides for students. Holy
1: shit. Smoop! Yeah. yeah.
0: This week's episode brought to you by <laughs> Shmoop.
1: <laughs> All right. So Shmoop is breaking down the lyrics here. And we've got, I picked up my bag. I went looking for a place to hide when I saw Carmen and the devil walking side by side. Okay. All right. So quick, uh, Shmoop does this quick thought, deep thought. So okay. quick thought. These lines suggest temptation. Carmen one of opera's most unforgettable characters, is synonymous with seduction and its disastrous consequences. Okay, deep thought. George Bizet's 1875 opera Carmen. Carmen is a beautiful gypsy cigarette girl who seduces Don Jose. Completely undone by Carmen's charms, the formerly noble and duty-minded Don Jose neglects his duty, draws his sword on a superior officer, deserts his unit, and, of course, eventually kills Carmen. Of course.
0: So I buy this because... This is the the opera is based on a novella by Prosper Mary May, um it's also called Carmen, and that was turned into a nineteen twenty six film that Louis Bunuel assistant directed.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, so
0: there is a connection.
1: Great. I love this. Yeah. Okay. So, in other words, Carmen is temptation, a fitting companion for the devil, and a dangerous obstacle for the traveler trying to complete the errand he has undertaken for Miss Fanny.
0: This I all this I totally buy.
1: Uh, and then Schmoop just says something that we kind of already covered here. Robbie Robertson is clearly aware of all the meaning attached to the name Carmen, but Levon Helm wrote that all of the song's characters were drawn from real-life friends and acquaintances.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like, they changed the names or are using nicknames.
1: Right. So you know, th- yeah
0: the choice of inclusion could be the meaning behind it or whatever i you know i I think both can be kind of true
1: i agree all right go down miss moses there's nothing you can say it's just old luke and luke's waiting on the judgment day
0: so go down moses is like a thing that people say right
1: it's a song
0: oh it is like like let my people go
1: actually yes it is let my people go oh okay So, quick thought, this might refer to the African-American spiritual song, Go Down Moses, or it might refer to William Faulkner's novel, Go Down, Moses, or it might refer to another real-life character drawn from band members past, blah, blah, blah. Okay, deep thought. This line offers yet another of these teasing references to cultural icons, yet, at least according to Levon Helm, it's actually referring to real people from the band's past. Luke was Jimmy Ray. Luke Paulman, mocked by his friends for being incredibly slow and therefore waiting on the judgment day. Miss Moses, according to some, was another of the Arkansas characters who is important to add living texture to the song. But once again, it's hard to believe that Robertson was unaware of the cultural button he would push with the line after all, the man like Surrealist filmmaker Louis uh-huh. um i
0: yeah, I think it's like a like a Wizard of Oz thing where he's casting the characters that he knows in real life as these yeah. You know, oh, I have a friend named Luke. What if he was the real Luke or, you know, the Luke from the Bible or, you know, same with Miss Moses. And and you would say, you know, saying go down, Miss Moses is not an accident. Totally. Um, Yeah, I think it's like a little bit of kind of postmodernist fun. I can't believe we've referenced The Wizard of Oz in three episodes in a row.
1: (laughs) Oh, wait.
0: Yes, I can. (laughs)
1: Robertson did say that he liked Faulkner for a band with powerful Southern roots, Southern roots, this greatest of all Southern writers, mm, what, could easily have been required reading. Oh, Faulkner as the Southern writer. Okay, not Robertson.
0: No, no yes. <laughs> like, Faulkner what? is the greatest of all <laughs> Southern writers.
1: So it's I was like, okay, t- you're a
0: James <laughs> Joyce fan. Fine.
1: <laughs> I mean, Faulkner did a As I Lay Dying too right
0: sure also james joyce is from ireland i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about
1: okay uh well as i lay dying was some boring bullshit
0: wow we are fucking uneducated (laughs) pieces of shit
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right uh yeah so back to faulkner the greatest of all southern writers could easily have been required reading so it's very possible that he read faulkner's novel go down moses but it's easier to draw parallels with the Bible-based black spiritual Go Down Moses. In the song, Moses, like the narrator of the wait, is asked to deliver a message. Go down, okay. Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go.
0: Sure. When Cameron was in Egypt land.
1: So sort of like give my regards to everyone punctuated by a bunch of frogs, flies, and locusts. <laughs>
0: Sure. I think it's like all, it's all, he's just like doing kind of a melting pot of cultural references. It's like not that deep.
1: Right. Crazy Chester followed me and he caught me in the fog. He said, I will fix your rack if you take Jack, my dog.
0: Rack? Gun
1: rack? So most likely, according to Schmoop, the rack refers to a bed, which is like commonly called a rack in the military. Okay. This is one of the most frequently misquoted lines of the song. Many lyric websites, for example, suggest that Crazy Chester offers to fix the traveler's rags in return for feeding his dog.
0: Or his back?
1: Even among those who hear rack instead of rags, there is a disagreement over the meaning. One of the more common suggestions that the line has some sort of drug connotation, as in fix your rack would mean easier pain by getting you a fix. Okay. But the more likely meaning is far simpler. Just that rack is the common military term for a bunk bed, and a bed is what the narrator enters Nazareth hoping to find.
0: Uh, but and he's a peaceful man, so he doesn't want a military bed. Maybe. I don't know, man. This is making my my head hurt <laughs> and, and my back. <laughs> the weight. The is, weight is be- crushing the weight your of back. these metaphors
1: yeah <laughs> um back to catch a cannonball now take me down the line my bag is sinking low and i do believe it's time so uh schmoop talks about the train reference that i mentioned um but also said that some have suggested that cannonball may be a more specifically canadian reference that during the 1960s the band members might have watched the popular Canadian television show Cannonball, in which Mike and Jerry kept an eye out for smokies while putting the hammer down across Canada's highways.
0: What the fuck? Uh, like I have no Smokey idea what I just and the said.
1: Bandit thing? I have no idea. Jesus.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's weird because, like, this is like high school English itis where it's like, the light shining through the curtains represents hell and heaven and also Moses and also the <laughs> devil and also President Ronald Reagan. And you're like, or they just are saying that it's daytime out. Like, what are you, <laughs> yeah.
1: what are you okay. trying to do here? So uh, it's kind of similar to what you're actually describing right now. Singers like Mavis Staples performances have been described as like more overtly religious. And I'm not sure why.
0: Well, because she's like a gospel singer.
1: Yeah, but I don't, there's nothing about her rendition that's...
0: No, it's just that it sounds gospel, different. and so they're like, well, oh, it must be religious.
1: Robertson told The Wall Street Journal in 2016 that Staples is his favorite version. Sure. And the band later played the song with Staples for The Last Waltz, which... if you want to tell us what The Last Waltz is?
0: Yeah, so The Last Waltz is the last quote unquote performance of the band, and it was a concert on Thanksgiving Day of 1970 two or three and six. it was filmed six and it was filmed <laughs> and it was filmed for a documentary by martin scorsese and so it is one of scorsese's like early documentaries and it's just a concert film and it's basically it's considered one of the best concert films ever um i i like stop making sense better um but uh it's it's a big concert it's like a three-hour concert and they bring up all of their friends to do songs including bob dylan and joni mitchell and neil young and there's like a thing about the dvd release of the movie where they had to digitally remove all of the cocaine that was on bob dylan's nose or something really yeah like bob dylan is fucked up (laughs) um they also bring out van morrison bunch of people it's crazy it's like a really long concert interspersed with like interviews from the band yeah a friend of mine and i went to see it at the egyptian theater in la and he got a little too high before we went and was just singing all of the songs at full volume in sitting in the audience and i was like shut the fuck up (laughs) oh
1: my god high on weed yeah how old are you
0: this was in twenty fourteen or 2013. Okay. So, I w- he's a year older than me. So he was 20 28.
1: Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Irrelevant. We're
0: not the, We're not friends anymore. It's fine.
1: <laughs> Being in the Last Waltz was the most beautiful thing that ever happened to the Staples Singers. Mavis Staples told Rolling Stone in 2015. I still can't get off stage without doing the wait. So, I saw Mavis Staples do the wait at Newport Folk Festival. I'm not sure if it's the year that you were there. I think it was probably 2012 because I was there I in 2011. Feel yeah. like it was like a Levon Helm, uh, memoriam thing. And he died he when died I was living year. in L.A. Yeah.
0: Okay, so that was 2012, 2013. The year
1: after. Okay. Well, do you want to hear the Staples version?
0: Sure. Staples, we got that.
1: just need some place where i could lay my head hey mister can you tell me where i good. can find yeah. a bed
0: i do think that the only reason that they think it's more gospel head, or more religious no, is because she's like a gospel say. type singer mm-hmm. there's no content
1: Put right on. The on me. Aviv, you're going to tell us a story about the last waltz, right?
0: Yes, and it relates to the weight, and 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 so and not I, about
1: your friend getting stoned.
0: It's ne- well, maybe a little. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's I, I had mentioned earlier that like this is the song that tr- that's drunk or stone dudes played at parties in college, and I don't mean that figuratively. So. Um, there was, you know, I was in a college band. And so there was like a bit of a scene um, that was the center of which was this band called Forrest Henderson. And the four members of Forrest Henderson are still very good friends of mine. But they broke up in August August 7th, 2010, when their lead singer, Billy, moved to California uh, to get his PhD. And so they did a last waltz of Forrest Henderson at the greatest venue in Boston, which is called Great Great Scott. Scott. R.I.P. And so they played for like 90 minutes, which is a really long time uh, to play. Uh, My band played, and another one of our friend's bands played, and they ended with The Wait. Sick. So yeah, you can listen to... You actually can't. So The Last Waltz of Forrest Henderson is available on Bandcamp, but they did not include The Wait because of copyright reasons but I have it and we can Ooh. maybe listen to a little bit of it underneath my little story
1: yeah that'd be awesome yeah all right so in 2016 Robertson did an interview with Mark Myers of the Wall Street Journal and we have some new slash conflicting information in this interview
0: uh, it's always happens with these old 70s guys they just like decide to change the story
1: yeah they're like let me tell you when I had to walk down the street
0: yeah that's a perfect perfect impression <laughs> Absolutely nailed it.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, so he said that when he like saw the Maiden Nazareth stamp on his guitar, uh, yeah, it brought to mind Brunwell's film Nazarene, which, quote, unlocked a lot of stuff in my head. I just knew I wanted characters to unload their burden on the song's main character in each verse. The guy in my song starts by asking the first person he sees in Nazareth about a place to stay a night, a biblical concept.
0: Oh, shut the... F- well, okay, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. No. This is probably where I will. Because Nazareth, there's no room at the inn. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that Bethlehem, though? No, that was Nazareth. Nazareth. No, Mm -hmm.
1: wait. Mm. Mm. Where's the three wise men from?
0: The three wise men are from elsewhere. That's because they they traveled. (laughs) But they had to travel to Bethlehem for the census. And that's why there was no room at the inn. Because he's a Nazarene, so they weren't in Nazareth, because then she would have just popped him out at home, right? You're the Catholic here.
1: <laughs> I am. I was never a Catholic. I was <laughs> made to be Presbyterian, but... Um... <sighs> so, Robertson also said the image of Carmen and the devil walking side by side was borrowed from Ingmar Bergman?
0: Mm-hmm. Ingmar
1: Bergman's the seventh seal yeah and the famous yeah. chess game with death so do you want to tell us a little bit about the seventh seal
0: yeah so the seventh seal is a movie by Ingmar Bergman about a guy played by Max von Sydow who he's like a knight and yeah. he gets into a chess match with death it's like one of the greatest movies ever made you can see it parodied in Bill and Ted's bogus journey where they think they play battleship with death
1: oh really funny
0: yeah or connect four or something
1: and why is he? Why did he challenge Death to a chess match for his life?
0: Because Death was gonna take him, and so he just like it's like basically the plot of uh, the Devil went down to Georgia, but with chess instead of fiddling.
1: When he came back from whatever like conquest the he was crusade, on, yeah. the crusade, yeah, it was the bubonic plague, right?
0: Oh, so it's like a metaphor for the plague that that Death Death is gonna take him because he's got the plague. Yeah. I uh sure. I, I don't remember that part of it, but that tracks.
1: Okay. Uh great. Thank you. For teaching us about films.
0: Seven Seal and Bill and Ted's bogus journey.
1: <laughs> Noted.
0: And uh, a quick plug for the last action hero, which is a nineteen ninety three John McTiernan movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. Are you familiar with this movie?
1: Uh no, absolutely not.
0: Okay, go with me on this journey for a second. So, The Last Action Hero, 1993, written by Shane Black, directed by John McTiernan, and it's about this little boy who is obsessed with a Arnold Schwarzenegger type action hero named Arnold Schwarzenegger, but his big Wait. Action, the action
1: yep. hero's named arnold schwarzenegger
0: yeah yeah it's like the real world right arnold schwarzenegger is a human being in this world but in the world he plays this character named jack slater and it's like a super cop sort of deal and uh and so jack slater four is coming out and his friend who owns a movie theater like an old dilapidated movie theater gives him like a magic ticket and so he goes into the jack slater movie and has to help him navigate uh the plot of the movie and like escape But at one point, the bad guy played by Charles Dance from Game of Thrones makes like he he gets a hold of the ticket and discovers that he can bring other movie villains out of their movies into the real world. And so he goes into the seventh seal and brings death out Um, and death is played by Gandalf himself. No way. Uh, Yeah. And Magneto himself. Sir Ian McKellen. He only has like two lines in the movie, but it's awesome. It, the, the movie is in, like incredibly good and like flopped at the box office for some reason, but I lo- I absolutely adore that movie. What's it called? The Last Action Hero.
1: Did it influence any of your films that you wrote?
0: Any of my films? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. There's like a gag in it where the kid is trying to prove to Jack Slater, the character within the movie, that he is in a movie, and so they go to a video store, and he shows him a poster of Terminator 2, and it's Stallone. In Terminator Two, and Schwarzenegger's like, it's his best role. <laughs> Fucking love that movie. Oh, it it actually did. It actually did influence my one of my movies.
1: Yeah. Tell so
0: us. when Slater and the kid, whose name I forget, come out into the real world, one of the things that Slater is confused about is that in the real world, you have to reload guns because in action movies, you just shoot guns and they don't ever run out of bullets, right? Sure. And so I am always in any movie I'm ever writing that has a gun in it. I am very, very conscious, always very conscious of how many bullets are in each gun.
1: Ooh, how many how many bullets are in each gun?
0: Uh, Well, some are six shooters, so six. (laughs) But I wrote a Western where like the economy of bullets is very, very important. And so the character is like counting how many bullets she has left.
1: Hmm. And we're back to The Wizard of Oz.
0: And we're back to The Wizard of Oz. And weirdly, Terminator 2. (laughs) My two favorite movies.
1: So this is Robertson in 2016. I wrote The Wait in late 1967 in a house I was renting in Woodstock, New York. All of us in the band had been living up there while playing and recording The Basement Tapes with Bob Dylan. We played at a pink house in nearby west saugerties that we called big pink
0: saugerties okay sure
1: okay this is also direct contradiction to the rolling stone article from 1968 that said they lived in big pink
0: yeah i don't know
1: whatever yeah
0: i mean i agree but like i think
1: this might maybe just is me picking apart his words like they played in there where they lived right Because then he says, prior to moving to Woodstock, I lived at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Poet Gregory Corso, who was staying there, urged me to check out the Gotham Book Mart on West 47th Street. The bookshop was a dusty, funky place owned by Fanny Steloff.
0: Shut the fuck up.
1: That sold used and new books. After looking around, I found that the store also stocked movie scripts. I loved film and had long wondered how plot elements in a film fit together. These scripts were like blueprints.
0: You can take my class, Robbie.
1: <laughs> the script that punched me between the eyes was Ingmar Bergman's screenplay for his 1957 movie The Seventh Seal and Louis Buñuel's scripts for *Nazarene* and Veridiana, which examined the impossibility of sainthood also captivated me. Up in Woodstock in 67, images from all these scripts were stirring around in my head. The band was just finishing up with Bob and we had already written enough songs for music from Big Pink, but I wanted one more as a fallback just in case. Our drummer and lead singer, Levon Helm, had just returned after spending nearly two years away from the music business. I wanted to write a song that Levon could sing better than anyone in the world. Shut Shut up. <laughs> One night in Woodstock, upstairs in my house, in a workspace next to my bedroom, I picked up my 1951 Martin D-28 acoustic guitar to write a song. I turned the guitar around and looked in the sound hole. There, I saw a label that said, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, the town where Martin was based. For some reason, seeing the word Nazareth unlocked a lot of stuff in my head from Nazarin and those other film scripts. Once I had a few chords written, I sang. Pulled into Nazareth, was feeling how half past dead. I didn't have any grand story planned. I don't even know where the melody came from or the chord structure. As for the words, I just knew I wanted characters to unload their burdens on the song's main character in each verse. The guy in my song starts by asking the first person he sees in Nazareth, Nazareth about a place to stay. Biblical concept.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. The chorus Bethlehem, I came up though.
1: with was take a load off Fanny. Not Annie, as many people think. I'm not sure I had the Gotham's owner in mind when I used Fanny, but her name was certainly buried back there in my imagination. Fanny just felt rhythmic. Take a load off and put it right on me. Also- So we're talking about a load of books? Pure Bruniel. Once you lend a hand and assume someone else's burden, you're involved. Hmm. Uh... Was James Cameron inspired by Bruniel too?
0: for for what movie? Terminator 2?
1: You jump, I jump.
0: Okay, relax.
1: I'm involved now.
0: <laughs> uh, no, cuz Louis Buñuel wasn't making films in 1914 when the Titanic sank.
1: <laughs> because the dialogue is perfect documentary.
0: Mm-hmm. And Chippewa Falls doesn't exist either. Or the lake Neither
1: did the Santa Monica roller coaster.
0: Uh, yeah, the on the Santa Monica Pier See? we're back to the jack's a ghost (laughs) it's always someone's a fucking ghost
1: (laughs) back to the Myers interview with robertson carmen and the devil walking side by side is from the seventh seal okay so we already knew that and the song words came to me i wrote them on my portable typewriter i got used to typing lyrics from bob i never saw him write anything with a pen or pencil he'd make little corrections on his type pages but everything he wrote initially went through his typewriter There was no magic to this process. It was just that Bob knew how to type. He had taken typing in school. Crazy Chester was based on someone I saw in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas, when I was 16. There was this guy in a wheelchair who was kind of nuts. He'd roll into the town square, and when the girls went by, he'd call out, Hoochah, baby, Hoochah. It was like a tick.
0: Hoochah, baby, (laughs) Hoochah.
1: Chester stuck in my head. The only major change I made in the entire song was the name of Chester's dog. Originally, I named the dog Hamlet after bassist Rick Danko's dog at Big Pink. I changed it to Jack because Hamlet didn't sing right. When the band got together to rehearse at Big Pink in late 67, I had a basic chord structure. A melody and words. I taught that to everybody. At some point during rehearsals, I stumbled across Levon adjusting his drum heads and the sounds they made. I had him loosen the heads so th- when he hit them, the sound would slide another to another tonality.
0: Yeah, it sounds like he's banging on trash cans.
1: But he literally said they never rehearsed it, or one of them said that.
0: I think I think that it's like rehearsal recording. Like they're they're doing both. Like they played it four times. They sure. learned the song. Are they rehearsing? What, a, what the fuck ever, okay. man.
1: <laughs> the only tricky part came at the end of each chorus when I wanted the guys to sing, and, 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 you put the load right on me. The harmony parts took a few minutes for everyone to feel.
0: A few minutes. Uh, it's a quarter note. You're okay. on one, I'm on two, he's on three, done.
1: Done. Before we performed with the Staples for the last Waltz documentary in 76, Pop Staples asked me, Robbie, what's this song actually about? I said, Pops, you know as well as I do. He looked at me, laughed, and said, Go down, Moses. Let my people go. As we performed, Pops sang by sliding to the notes, and his daughter's voices slid right now behind his. That was beautiful. Was it was like doing land. God's work. And maybe Let that's what motivated the song in the first place. Okay. <laughs> So, Big Pink charted at number 30 in the U.S. while The Weight only reached number 63. At the time, other artists had more success with covering The Weight. Versions by Aretha Franklin hit 17 in the U.S. in April of 1969. And that had uh, Dwayne Allman on the guitar. And The Supremes with The Temptations uh, hit 46 in U.S. in September 1969. Three other people besides the band were charting on the same song at the same time. Diana Ross and the Supremes with the Temptations album, from which the single was taken, reached number two. And wow. Aretha Franklin's album Soul 69 reached number 15. So ultimately, the band wasn't really solely responsible for the weight becoming such an epic classic.
0: Yeah. And we had talked a little bit about this with our like folk song episode with um, Hallelujah, which is like a good song, especially of this era. Like a standard? Especially. Yeah, especially if you're, like, coming from Bob Dylan, who, like, tried to make this happen with all of his songs. It's like, it should feel like it has existed forever. Mm. And, and the, you know, to, to varying effect, this does that.
1: Right. There's over 100 covers have been performed and recorded, including The Grateful Dead, The Allman Brothers, Bruce Springsteen, John Denver, Cassandra Wilson, The Black Crows, Joe Cocker, Miranda Lambert, Weezer. And many, many, many more. Weezer. Yep.
0: No, thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, the way was also featured on the soundtrack of the Peter Fonda Dennis Hopper film Easy Rider in 1969. Mm-hmm. But then the band wouldn't let them use the song for the soundtrack, like that they sold in the store, you know. And so they re-recorded it. Someone else re-recorded it, and then that soundtrack went to number six in October of 1969, and it okay. was on the chart for 41 weeks.
0: Yep and and that's that's largely due to steppenwolf right born to be wild is like the opening track to that
1: okay so we've talked pretty extensively about the last waltz uh the 1978 documentary that lovingly captured the band's final concert and why were you like allegedly final concert
0: oh because they like people do reunion shows all the time
1: gotcha According to NPR, Scorsese's film framed the project as more Robertson's band than interdependent whole, which all became a bit much for drummer Levon Helm, who in his 1993 book, This Wheel's on Fire, blamed Robertson for the band's breakup and accused him of taking credit for songs that should have been shared.
0: This wheel is on fire. <laughs> I, want, I, I, I want credit for, for waiting. Because I wanted to do that for the entire paragraph.
1: (laughs) So proud of you. Thank you. So as the chief credited songwriter, Robertson made more money than his bandmates. So there was some bad blood there. I mean, the Helm Robertson band bad blood like went on forever until Helm died. But Robertson went and visited him in the hospital. And by Robertson's account, by the mid-70s, every member of the group was struggling with drugs or alcohol or both. And they were no longer getting along that tracks so yeah helm died in 2012 only a few months after winning the grammy for best americana album and a month after losing a lawsuit against bbdo worldwide inc that he'd filed in 2004 over commercial use of the song the weights in a singular wireless which is now at&t ad oof we don't make we didn't make that song to be a fucking jingle. It was just a complete damn sellout of the band. Its reputation. It's music. Just as much disrespect as you could pour on Richard and Rick's tombstones.
0: I wonder so did Robertson okay this or was it like the record label? It know? was
1: it was the label. Because yeah, they had it in like the contract that they could use it for commercial use.
0: Same thing happened with Aretha. That's why Aretha never got paid for fucking anything.
1: <sighs> Messed up stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, a month after losing this lawsuit, Helm dies. Bassist Rick Danko died in 1999, and Richard Manuel died by suicide in 1986. Jesus. So Robertson and organist Garth Hudson are the only surviving members of the band. Um. All right, so you never liked the song. No. I gotta say, I think I like it less now. Good. If anything, this whole experiment taught me that, like, some things are meant to be understood and some things are just better enjoyed
0: yeah vibes right
1: yeah and there's just too much back and forth it means nothing it means something it's go down moses it's surrealism like when you were 24 did you really write this like that
0: i mean you you can like we have amazing music from 24 year olds so sure but it's like very like sometimes You know what they say. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, right? Sometimes a song is just like pleasant sounding syllables put together with no meaning. And we have an entire genre, several entire genres of music where people accept that, right? Like with pop music, especially like electronic pop music that we see today, like we understand that nothing really means anything. Yeah. But because of the genre that it was in, because of their association with Bob Dylan, because we have, like, white baby boomers, like, listening to the song for 50, almost 60 years at this point, it's got to mean something, right?
1: Yeah, they had to make myth out of it.
0: Yeah, like, yeah, not everything is a myth. And I think that, honestly, to get a little inside baseball, I think that that's important for us to do on the show periodically is, like... Not every song has a secret meaning behind it.
1: Right.
0: So we're so we're, it's not about coming on Jesus' chest.
1: It's not about coming on Jesus' chest, as far as or I like know.
0: Swapping, right? Where you take you take the load off of Fanny and just <laughs> put it on me.
1: Straight on me. Yeah, I mean that is a, as valid of an interpretation as any.
0: Thank you. <laughs> nazareth pennsylvania eh?
1: so yeah so there's the band sings about all of these places that are so uniquely american right at like atlantic city um nazareth pa the night they drove all dixie down Mm -hmm. and the fact that four out of five of them are canadian okay
0: so thank you okay this is why i've never liked music like this is i can tell that you're a fucking poser Right. Like you weren't born in a bog in Mississippi.
1: It's so unsettling to me. Like I had no idea
0: that that they were all that, Canadian.
1: Like I really only like knew about Levon Help.
0: I and the Canadian part of it is not the thing that really bothers That's me. Offensive.
1: It's not offensive. No, it's the they're material, right?
0: Yeah. It, it's it's the fact that they're pretending to be something that they're not. They're like they're like pl- cosplaying some other thing and like wh- like, why why yeah.
1: yeah so i went looking for what other people had written about this fact now that i knew it
0: this is by the way like what i argued about pearl jam too where pearl jam is i misspoke and said san diego pearl jams from like illinois and they moved to seattle to like be a part of the seattle scene just like yeah. be who you are where you're where you are man like what the fuck
1: unless you need to get out of there for safety reasons or
0: yeah, 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 but don't don't co-opt the sound of
1: and the a place
0: and the identity of a place that that you don't actually have any real ties to.
1: Yeah, agreed. So, like, this if is... I
0: started playing like Irish jig music, that would be a little disingenuous because I'm not Irish.
1: If like, especially if all your lyrics were just like about
0: Seamus O'Callahan went to the <laughs> pub, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like this little town. I don't know. So this is from the New Yorker, which provides an opposing view. Sure. As Grail Marcus argued in the 1975 book Mystery Train, the band's ability to give voice to an idea of America at the moment it did had much to do with the fact that four fifths of the group was Canadian. They had come here by choice. After all, they had fallen in love with the music. First, as they sought it out on the radio and on records, later as they learned to play it, and Wonder of Wonders define it. Yet it was Helm, raised in Elaine, Arkansas, who gave these Canadian vagabonds a real foothold in the South American culture to which... So, yes, yeah, Southern American oh, yeah. and South American, Sorry. but yeah. A real foothold in the They're Southern... playing flamenco. <laughs> a real foothold in the Southern American culture to which they were drawn. Robertson's mixture of outsider naivete and enthusiasm was a necessary part of writing one of the band's most enduring songs, The Lost Cause Lament, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, in such a way that it might be heard today, unlike so many other neo-confederate rock songs as performative and uh, observational rather than explicitly political. When he set out to write it, he reports in Testimony, which is his memoir that he wrote that I haven't mentioned yet, he had to go to the library to look up Civil War history. See,
0: <laughs> this is, I don't like this.
1: <laughs> right? It's a little weird. It was a song of the South once removed. Its brilliance is complicated and tenuous. And in the wrong hands, it fails completely. As when Joan Baez recorded an oddly upbeat and mindless version of it in <laughs> 1971.
0: Okay, I kind of like her version, but sure.
1: When Helm sang it, he made it sound much older than it was, as if it had been written in 1869 rather than 1969.
0: These, for all I mean, I understand their point of view. Yeah, it just like is exactly the the things that I that bump up against me.
1: Right. His truth in that vocal could tear your heart out. Robertson writes of Helm's performance of the song during the last waltz show. It took me back to when I first wrote that song, wanting to come up with something that Levon could sing better than anyone in the world. Hmm, where have we heard that before?
0: Oh, shut the fuck up, Robbie Robertson.
1: <laughs> this desire was the band.
0: So I, so, so I think I can fi- kind of put, put my perspective into f- a finer detail, which is that, like, for me, music is very confessional and it mm-hmm. is very personal and to find out that we are making stuff up and we're not we're singing about things that are inauthentic to our own experiences feels like I'm being marketed to and like I'm I'm being cheated or lied to through the music which like makes me angry yeah and that 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 does not that is like intellectual and my dislike for the song is also emotional. I just like don't like it as like a, you know, cause like there are, there are bands that do this and I'm like, well, but shit's catchy, you know?
1: And like they did live in America then, right? So if you were like writing about LA, it's like, okay, well that is your experience now. F- like, but not yeah. necessarily the night don't they drove Dixie down. Don't write about fucking
0: Dixie. Don't write yeah. about being a good old boy.
1: Yeah, exactly
0: because why because you think it makes you cooler or more marketable or
1: because they were hanging out with dylan too much
0: but dylan didn't write like this
1: but he you know co-opted standards or
0: mm, you know? i see and he so he so dylan did it better right because dylan told stories fictional stories but was like truer to kind of the the theme or the The truth of the emotion or, you know, making it personal without it being exactly about him or something. I don't know. It doesn't bother me when Dylan does this at all. Interesting. I'm a hypocrite. What what can I say?
1: (laughs) Okay. So, uh, ever since Bette Midler sang One for My Baby and One More for the Road to Johnny Carson in 1992, it's become a tradition for a concluding late night show to be sent off with a song. Are
0: you fucking kidding me? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> In 2014 Jimmy Fallon said goodbye to Late Night and his show Late Night with Jimmy Fallon by performing The Wait with the Muppets
0: Oh that's cute
1: So that's what we're going to go out on today
0: I thought we were going out on Bette Midler's One More For The
1: Road
0: <laughs> Oh, Jimmy Fallon's drumming <laughs> Are we? Is this song about coming on the Muppets?
1: oh god I don't know the Muppets are sacred
0: also why would you remove the best Muppet animal so that you could fucking do this Jimmy Fallon I'm
1: pretty sure animal is gonna make an appearance
0: oh good uh where can people find us on the internet you can find us on the internet at lyricsforlunch.com where you can also support the show Um, And you can hit us up on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Lyrics for Lunch. Let us know how you feel about Fanny and taking loads off of her. Um, And for longer and weirder (laughs) stuff, shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. There's
1: Animal. There
0: he is. Dr. Teeth.
1: Give us a rate and review wherever you find your podcast. Tell your friends. it's Word of mouth is one of the best ways for us to spread our message of harmony, peace, and love about songwriting.
0: Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah, like and subscribe. Uh, and tune in next week. What did I say we're going to do right here, right now? Amanda, Amanda made a good pitch. And I get to talk about another James Cameron movie. Well, James Cameron produced movie. Catherine Bigelow movie. Strange Days. So until next time I'm Aviv Rubenstein
1: I'm Lindsay Tucker Saying Take a load off
0: Go down Miss Moses There's nothing that you can say It's just old Luke Waiting on judgment day. Well, look, my friend. What about young Annaly? He said do me a favor, son. I won't you stay and keep Annalie company? Take a load off Annie. Take a load. Sends me here...